As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray now as, as we come to your word that um, you would help us. What we do not know, Father, teach us. And what we do not have, we pray that you would give to us. And what we are not, we pray that you would make us to be. And all this for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Turn please to James in chapter 5. I want to read verses 13 through 20. won't have opportunity to kind of unpack all of that today. In fact, we won't get past verse 13, but, but I want to read it all so we can see the context of it. Also, you'll notice uh, in your bulletins, and I trust up there, I don't know if it's up there, but trust in your bulletins that in my effort to get you to respond all the time to things, to make sure that you're with me, and we're all together, uh, at the end of the reading today, the response is for all of us to say together this passage from Isaiah and from First Peter. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You can memorize that. In fact, we may use that all fall just to say that as soon as I'm finished reading the scripture, you just kind of work right into that and, uh, and we'll see how that uh, helps us. So, James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone picks him, or brings him back, and let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And together, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, as we come to the end of this letter, we've been here for some time, but as we come to the end of this letter, we're, we're seeing that, 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 that James is sort of summing up, kind of bringing it all uh, together. Remember, he's writing to a group of people who are experiencing, just like we experience, who are experiencing various trials. Some of their trials may be different than ours in that some of them, all this group, many of them, had left Jerusalem because of persecution and found their way into other regions. And when they did, began to gather with one another and others, no doubt, into what we would call local churches. And so James is writing to them as they're experiencing various trials. And what he's trying to teach them through this letter is how do we live by faith? What does it mean? What does it mean, really, to be people who trust in Jesus? And for people who trust in Jesus, how then are we to live this out in the midst of difficulties, maybe even persecution, but in the midst of the, the difficulties of life, the difficulties that come from living in a world that's fallen, this time between the time that Jesus has come and the time that he'll come again. How do we, how do we really navigate this? How do we live through this? And, and we can see now what he's getting at is that he's telling us that we're to pray. And we get that from the passage I read because he says the word pray or prayer seven times. And I assume that even we can figure this one out. That this is my, must be what he wants us to, to listen about and what he wants to teach us about. That we are to be people who pray. We're to pray personally. 
Um, we're to pray uh, with each other. We're to pray when we're sick and call for the elders who are to pray. And he gives us even this example of the prophet Elijah and his praying. And in some sense, we're to be like him, pray like Elijah. And so we see that he's teaching us to pray here. And, and he mentions all kinds of circumstances, whether we're suffering or whether we're happy, cheerful, whether we're sick or whether we're in sin or even when we're wandering from our faith. So he talks about all of those kinds of circumstances that can happen in a group of people who call themselves a church, a group of people who are believers gathered together. These kinds of things happen among us. And so he says, here's, here's how to, to, here's, here's how to deal with this. This should be our first instinct if you always going to talk to us about the fact that we're to pray. This opening question, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Now, I think they would say, James, you know us. You know that we are. That's why you're writing to us. We're going through various kinds of trials. You know this. In fact, in, in, in chapter, uh, in verse 10 of chapter 5, he says, an example of suffering and patience with the prophets. And so you know we're suffering. That's what you're talking to us about. And he knows that they know that he knows that they're suffering. It's rhetorical. Any, is anybody suffering among you? And it kind of catches everybody's ear. And he says, because he's, he's going to say, here's what you do in that circumstance. He says, pray. Anybody suffering, you should, you should, you should pray. Uh, this suffering, it could be because of persecution. He knew that in his own life. They knew that some. The Apostle Paul talks about his own suffering and he writes to, to Timothy in, 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 in 2 Timothy. He says, as a good soldier, endure this suffering. So we get that, but it, it's bigger than that. It's these various trials, all kinds of suffering. Think in your own life. What's the distresses of your life? I made a list, just as I thought about this this week, of, of all the conversations I've been in in the last couple of weeks with people. Mostly casual conversations, just meeting each other in various settings at dinner or in groups or, or at the grocery store. Some in more formal settings, but just meeting people. What kinds of things have I heard that I would list of people, people that we know, us, going through in different things? Some of these things you, you may not be experiencing, but, but think of your own, of your own life. For instance, one of the things that came to the fore was just loneliness for people. Just loneliness. And the people new in town, new to the church. People who have, people moved away who were friends, living in distance from children or parents or family. Sense of loneliness. Some had experienced this loneliness because of a, a loss of someone. And they're still grieving that loss and loneliness in that sense. Uh, others, as I mentioned, grief, just, just having uh, lost people to, to death or, or grief of, of perhaps a dream that you've had, something you've desired to do. It just doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. Others who are experiencing chronic illness, chronic pain, just doesn't seem to go away. And, 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 and this sense of suffering or others who are suffering because of, of a spouse or a child or a parent, someone they love who isn't a believer and it just weighs on you, that sense of it, um, various personal weaknesses. Uh, I've talked to a few students in the last few weeks at various levels of education who've talked to me, had me pray, talked to me just about their struggle in school, that learning 
<laughs> the process of learning in school is a, is a difficult thing. And summer's been so wonderful. <laughs> and now school's about to begin again. And, and there's this anxiety because they know what it's going to feel like to be in that classroom setting again. And, and so they've asked me to, to pray for them. And other personal weaknesses that you may have, perhaps in your job, just your own skill set. And you know that I'm to do certain things and yet I'm weak in that area. And it pains me when I think about financial worries. Some have lost jobs. Some are trying to get jobs. Some feel underemployed. Some aren't making enough money. Some just feel the financial pressures. And you look around and it doesn't seem like anybody else is experiencing the same pressures you are. They are, by the way. But, but, uh, but you get this sense of financial pressure. That's a worry and a, and a, a difficulty for some. Uh, some just disappointments in life. You look around and you go, I didn't think it was going to be like this. And just the disappointments of life. Some have experienced discouragement, some really depression in the midst of life. Uh, relationships that can be weighing and harmful even and hurtful in certain situations. Our own sin. This is it bears on us. And we think, oh, that again. That thought. I said it again. I did it again. Or I didn't think it, or I didn't do it, or I didn't say it. You know, this plague us, and just the, 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 the suffering that we have of living in the world in which we live. It, and in fact, it, many have come to me in these days and said, life just seems more complicated now. How do I navigate now in the culture as a Christian and the world in which we live? It just seems harder now. There seem to be more landmines that I could hit along the way that I, I didn't didn't exist before. And now, how do I do that and, and, and maintain my faith and my witness in the midst of that? It just, oh. I think that's what James is asking. So where are you suffering? Where are the distresses and difficulties of your life? And he says, well, our first instinct, our go-to should be to pray. And you go, well, duh, I knew that. I mean, I'm reading the Bible. Of course, that's what it's going to say. You know, I'm in church. Of course, I'm, that's what people are going to say. But, but the reason he's saying it, you know, is because that isn't always our first instinct. It isn't always our first go-to to pray when we begin to suffer. Sometimes our go-to is to grumble and complain. The first words out of our mouths aren't, Oh, Lord, help me. Please, Jesus, come to my aid. But it's to complain and grumble. Sometimes our first instinct is to worry and be anxious. Sometimes we gravitate towards those things which are really unhealthy for us. Whether it be abusing alcohol or, or drugs or prescription medications or pornography in the midst of anxieties, coping, whatever that is, you see. These kinds of things come to us and, 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 and we begin to, to act in ways we... We are not, but, but, but the point is, we're not really praying. Or sometimes we just roll up our sleeves and get to it. This is a problem. I'm going to solve it. And, and we've missed the middle step between the problem and solving it. And that is crying out to the Lord for his help. Because at the end, then we look and go, look what I did. Hoo-hoo, I'm good at this. And that can be a danger, you see. As well. And so he says, I want you to pray. Now, no surprise, it's consistent with what he's been talking about. Remember early, just as he begins this letter very bluntly to a group of people who are suffering various trials, he said, count it joy when you experience various trials. Why? Because this, these trials 
uh, exist in your life under the sovereign hand of God so that you learn how to persevere and endure, stick to it, because in the midst of that, that's where your faith grows. That's where you really grow. And then he says, if you lack wisdom in the midst of that, how to navigate that, how to think about that, pray and God will help you. Pray, believing, and God will help you. He'll give you wisdom. So he begins even saying to this people, you need, most particularly as a suffering people, as a people going through trials, you need to pray for the wisdom of God. Right? To pray for the wisdom of, of God. And then later, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, verse 17, he, he talks to us about Elijah. And th- these verses, I'll just just tempt you with them. Uh, these verses are, are just, they just draw us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Really? Yeah. But we think of Elijah as one of the big stars. He is. But one of the big, you know, the big prophets, you know, maybe the, some think the greatest of all the prophets. Uh, but Elijah, um, with a man at Lake, and nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it didn't. Then he prayed again in heaven, gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. And he's encouraging us to pray. He says, look, the prayers of a righteous person availeth. Well, that's my old King James coming out. Uh, the, the prayers of a, a righteous man are powerful and effective, you see. And so that's true. He's encouraging. We're to be people who really, who really pray, you see. Jesus encourages us to pray. I read earlier this morning from Matthew in chapter 7, where Jesus begins this exhortation about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 7 of Matthew. And he says, ask, seek, and knock. And many of you are familiar with these, this particular passage, and you know that those words, ask, seek, and knock, uh, are to be persistent. That we're to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. Uh, and why such persistence? Well, because that's the way life is. You never get over asking. (laughs) You never get over seeking. You never get over knocking. Right? Not for the things that really matter. Not for the things that are really important. Like holiness. Like being a person who really loves. Like being a person who's really faithful. Like being a person who's really compassionate. Like being a person who's really honest. You might pray and do well with that today. Guess what? Tomorrow's another day. And you need to pray again. You need to ask. You need to seek. And you need to knock. You need to keep after this. Because life is as persistent as our praying must be. And so that's how Jesus puts it. But he gives us great encouragement to pray. In this one, he he says, listen. You're, he looks around at the men and the group and the dads and he says, you're evil. <laughs> but even you give good gifts to your kids. How much more will our Heavenly Father, who isn't evil, who's perfectly good, how much more would he give good gifts to those who ask him, to his children who come to him and say, Father, you see? And he says, that's how we're to pray. In fact, this, this teaching that Jesus gives here, Luke has it, uh, that Jesus gave it also uh, in, in a setting and and in, in this one, Luke includes a parable, which we're familiar with, I trust, um, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 5. He says, which of you, 
who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. The setting of this parable uh, is that uh, there's a person and he has company and he doesn't have any food and that would be very rude not to offer this food. And so uh, he goes to another friend and it's midnight, but hey, it's, you know, you're my friend. And so he bangs on his door to get more, get some bread and the person says, I go away, I'm sleeping. And he keeps banging, go away, I'm sleeping. And finally, he gives in. Why? Because the guy's so stinking persistent. He knows the only way to get rid of him is to help him, give him bread, and then he'll be able to go back to sleep. What's this point? Uh, Jesus said, well, ask God and he'll give it to you. Why? Because God's not like that friend. If if your friend will do it just because you bother him, how much more will God, who really is your friend, who really does love you, give you good gifts? And there, there was another occasion, 18, where Jesus tells a similar parable. And it's about a, a, a woman who's experienced injustice. And so she goes to this judge who happens to be unjust himself. But she goes to this judge because she knows that he's the only one, at least in her sphere, that can give justice in this case. And she goes and she pleads and she pleads and she pleads. And finally he gives in. Why? Because she's bothering him. He just wants her to go away. And Jesus says, well, how much more will not your heavenly father Bring justice to his elect, to those who ask him. Be a people of faith. Keep coming to him. Trust him. And all those great encouragements, you see, to pray. And the the Apostle Paul, in his own life of of various experiences, times when he was beaten and imprisoned, and times when he was free and and healthy and happy. But in Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4, And verse 6, he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that? Why is it that when we pray, he gives us peace to guard us? So that we don't think wrong thoughts, so that we aren't anxious. Why is there peace when we've really prayed? Even before what we've prayed about is solved. There's peace because when we pray, there's a consciousness that God knows. And I know that God knows. And when I'm really secure, and I really know that God knows about the situation of my life, then why should I worry? We all do, I get it. But why should I worry when I know that God knows the situation I'm in? And you say, well, he always knows. Why do we need to pray? You're right. We're not giving him new information. It's not like God's going, wow, didn't know that was going on. (laughs) Hey, could somebody write this down? Uh... It's that we know that he knows. It isn't just a theoretical thing. It's a real thing. I've said it. I've heard me say it. I know that God knows. And so that peace, you see, that we can have it because if he knows. In another place in 
Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 5, he writes this. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And, and of course, that doesn't mean you just bow your head and, and, and uh, fold your hands and all of that all day long. Because if you did that, you'd bump into things, right? It would be not good. But what's he saying? He's saying always in our consciousness, always we should be mindful. Always we should be living in the presence of God, the conscious presence of God. So that the, 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 the praying is, is easy. Praying is breathing. Praise, it isn't breathing, but it's like it in the sense that it, it just comes to us because we know we're in the presence of God. It's not like we've left consciously, but we know that we're in the presence of God, that he always hears us as we come to him in the name of Jesus. So, so that's this great encouragement, you see, to pray. And we must always do that. So the author of Hebrews uh, is even, I suppose, in some ways, <clears throat> helpfully direct as well. In Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14, Since then, <clears throat> then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. If we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, thus, that is, because Jesus has made the way, because there he is, and we go through him, and he's there to receive us, and he's in the right place at the right time, which means he's at the throne of grace. That is, what comes from this throne, king ruling and reigning, is grace, and nothing can thwart him. In giving grace to help in times of need. That's the throne part of it. He's ruling and reigning over every circumstance and every situation. And he rules and reigns over grace and, and help. And so he sends it. So then the next verse is, Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find help, uh, find grace to help us in our time of need. See, that's his point. If you're suffering, pray. Let that be your first instinct. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of a last generation, put it like this. He said, the one urge which we should, I'm sorry, the one urge which should never be resisted is the urge to pray. Other urges I've had should be resisted, but not that one. Uh, Samuel Chadwick, a 19th century um, theologian preacher, said this, he said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies, our prayerless work, our prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. That's really true. And you say then, if that's the case, then when I pray that this suffering be, uh, be gone, that I be delivered from it, oh, why am I still suffering in various ways? Well, the truth of the matter is, that's life. All right? I mean, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, however you think about this, everybody has to deal with it. Everybody knows suffering. Everybody. We have the good news that our God is with us and is even sovereign over the suffering. And we can pray that he will help us. 
And what he's doing in it, we know, as James tells us, he's growing us up. He's maturing us in the midst of it. Stop fighting it. Walk through it. Praying. God will help you. You know, we had a definition of prayer this morning that we got out of Westminster. And it's this. It's offering up our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. With confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. This sense of for things agreeable to his will. It's our desires. It's coming from us. We have these desires. But we know that he'll only do those things which are agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. And since I'm not omniscient, I could get it wrong from time to time. Hardly enough. Surprisingly enough. Now there are things that I know are agreeable to his will. That I love. That I'm compassionate. That I'm forgiving. That I'm caring. That I'm just. And so forth. And I pray that those be true in my life. But as I get into the realm of circumstances, difficulties that I might face, do you know what's best for you? Really? I remember when I was in high school and I played basketball on the basketball team at Fort Lauderdale High, I always knew what was best for me and I told the coach. He rarely agreed. Really, coach, we don't need to run this one again. Trust me. Yes, we we really do. Right? Because he really knew and I really didn't. And the Lord, of course, is not a coach. He's the Lord of glory. He's the ruler of all things. And he really does know, you see. And we must really trust him. You see, implied in every prayer is a submission to his will. Whether we say your will be done or not, that's really the essence of it. In fact, James has told us that that not to live in this sense that it's God who wills and not we who will, that that that's presumption. Remember in James in chapter 4 when he's talking about those who just kind of live their lives thinking they're in control. I'm going to go do this and go do that. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, And that's the same in our prayers, you see. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not mine. Jesus himself even prayed, not my will, but yours be done, you see. In fact, the Apostle John lays it out as clearly as you can. In 1 John in chapter 5, John writes, um, and this, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us, we know that, that and if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that the request uh, that we have, we know that we'll have the request that we ask of him. So even James is very explicit in, in all of that. Um, I lead uh, morning prayers from the Book of Common Prayer with some people uh, a couple of times a week, and uh, uh, one of the prayers that uh, we pray each time is a prayer of Chrysostom, who was a fourth century church father. And it goes like this. Almighty God, who has given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you, and has promised through your well-beloved son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you'll be in the midst of them. This is what I'm after, the sentence. The prayer is, fulfill now 
O Lord, the desires and petitions of your servants as may be best for us. See, that's this prayer of submission. Well, we've prayed by that point in our prayers, we've prayed a lot. Some with formal prayers, some spontaneous. But we get there at the very end of it and we say, oh, by the way, I've said a lot of things this morning. Could you please fulfill those things that are best for us? What do we mean by that? We mean you know what is best for us and we don't. So please fulfill that. That's this prayer of humility, you see. I say, what about those prayers that seem never to be answered? Uh, what happens to those? Uh, I mean, I'm praying according to the word of God. I'm praying things that, that, that seem true here and, 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 and really that would, would touch the heart of God. And, 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 and if that's the case and you don't see them now, you will. Uh, Revelation chapter 8. Uh, I can't set the context of this right now. Too much, done enough time. But just listen to this. uh, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb, of course, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, that is that part of history, uh, then there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets who were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar. So get the picture. An angel stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The sense there, many theologians put it like this. The sense there is that God is storing up everything. Nothing is wasted. He's storing up his prayers on his altars and a day will come, you see. When they'll be mixed with this incense, you see. And boom. We'll see on the very face of the earth. And so we mustn't ever fret. Because he, he really does hear us. So what should we pray? Well, we should pray for the strength to endure and to be persevering, steadfast, in our faith. Like the author of Hebrews said, we should be like those who aren't shaken, but hold fast, you see, to the face. Pray that. Pray that God would strengthen us. That's what he says in, in James chapter 1. This, this trial has come upon you to, to cause endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, because that's the place where you mature. So pray that you'd be steadfast in the midst of that. Pray, pray. That God would give you a submissive spirit during this time of difficulty. That you would be submissive to him. And that you wouldn't grumble. But you'd be submissive to him and trust him in the midst of it. That's the steadfastness of prayer number one. But in prayer number two, to pray that you'd be submissive. To pray that you would know his grace. And his grace would be sufficient for you. And to pray that his power would be known in your weakness. That his power would be known in your weakness. And of course you have the freedom and we ought to pray that God would deliver us if it's a difficulty. That if you need a job, pray for one. If you desire a spouse, pray for one. Take a shower too, but pray for one. 
whatever your difficulty. You pray to be delivered from it. But know that till he does, you're to trust him and persevere in it. To receive his strength that you may walk through it. To submit to him in every situation. To be humble in the midst of it. To receive his grace. To walk in it. That you may see his power even in your weakness. And you say, well, I don't have the words to pray. What should I, I pray? Well, read the Psalms, first of all. And people come to me and they say, give me a Psalm. I'm in this situation. I almost always, not always, but I almost always say no. <laughs> I'm such a loving pastor. <laughs> I say, read them. Read them. These are inspired words. These are words of men who live in covenant with God, who are facing difficulties many times, and they wrote, and these are words we can use. These are words that God inspired for us to know and to embrace. And so read them, and as you read them, when you find expressions, when you find words, hopefully in the context of the psalm, when you find words, underline them, circle them, write them down, pray them. Before God, I have certain Bibles that I hide from people because I'm afraid if you read through the Psalms, you'll track my life. <laughs> you go, oh, he must have been going through this. He must be, oh, he must have been going through that. Oh, he must be. Because it's true, you see. Take those words and use them. And you say, well, there are times when I don't know what words. Well, then use the words of Jesus, our Father. Stop. Oh. Our friends, my father, he's the father who gives good gifts. He's in heaven. He sees everything. Nothing can thwart him because he's powerful and he sits over all. Oh, he's holy. There's no one like him. And every one of his attributes are great and perfect. You see, his power, his might, his love, his wisdom. He's my father. He's in heaven. He is holy. He rules. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Help me. I need bread today. I need this help today, please. Give me today my daily bread. Forgive me, please. My sins as I am in relationship with others and forgive them. And Please, you know my weakness. When temptation comes, you, you know my weakness. So please keep me from the evil one. It's your kingdom, your power, your glory always. You see, sometimes what happens is if prayer isn't our first instinct, we use up all our words grumbling. Spend all our time complaining. We never get to prayer. We use up our words. We're exhausted by them. William Cooper, who was a poet and a hymn writer in the previous century, uh, wrote uh, hymns uh, with and for uh, John Newton at a particular time in history. Uh, He wrote a great hymn we love. There is a fountain filled with blood. And uh, he lived a difficult life, though. Uh, He lost his mom when he was five. Uh, He wanted to marry, but his father wouldn't approve, so he never did. He felt loneliness through that. Towards the end of his life, especially, he became quite depressed and discouraged. And he wrote great poems. This one's about prayer. I'll read a couple of stanzas. First one is this. He says, what various hindrances we meet in coming to a mercy seat. All kinds of hindrances that keep us from praying, he says. Yet who knows that yet yet who knows that the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there. We we know it's good and we want to be there, but then he says, Have you no words? Think again. 
Words flow apace when you complain and fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of your care. Where half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, your cheerful song would oftener be, hear what the Lord has done for me. He says, if you stop complaining and start praying, you'd know the help of God. And that's where we ought to be. If you're suffering, pray very quickly. He says, if you're cheerful, if you're happy, sing. Sing praises. He says, he says, in every event, from the, from the worst to the best, uh, if you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, still go to God. Now give him thanks. Give him praise. That's what you see what we're to do. Uh, in Paul's letter to the church, to the Thessalonians, uh, he, he says that we're to, to, to pray without ceasing and we're to give thanks, he says, in all circumstances. You go, wow, really, in every circumstance, there's always something to be thankful for. You remember Paul, Apostle, and Silas were on a mission trip, and uh, they got into some difficulty. They were beaten. I mean, think about that for a minute. They were really beaten. Really beaten, bloody beaten. And thrown into prison. Dirty, yucky, mice-infested, rat-infested, no food, all kinds of germs, prison. After being beaten, hand in stalks, what did they do? They prayed and sang. <laughs> they prayed, no doubt. I would have prayed. Hey, could you get us out of here? But they sang praises because they knew God was with them. You can read the end of the story in Acts 16. It's a good one. But that's how we're to be, you see. We're suffering when we pray. We're suffering, we pray. We're cheerful. We are, you see, to always give thanks. And you say, well, why do we need to know that? Well, because we don't. We're probably, spiritually, in more danger in prosperity than when we're in pain. You see, when, when you remember from Deuteronomy 6 and 8, I won't read it, but you can refer to that later. But in, when, when Moses was taking the Israelites out of the wilderness into the land of promise, he warned them. He says, be very careful. Your tendency will be when you get to the land of promise, your tendency will be to forget God. Because you see, when you've planted, and you're gonna, your plantings are going to be blessed, you're going to have great harvests. You're going to build great houses. You're going to be successful in battle. You're going to move all the enemies out. And when you do that, rather than give thanks to God, what will happen is you go, I'm awesome. It's my power and my might and my wisdom that, that, that did all of this. We're great. And he says, that's the danger. Once you do that, you're done. And once we do that, we're done. And so you see the, the, the antidote to self-righteousness. The antidote to this sort of godless self-confidence is to give thanks all the time. So what's James after? James is saying, listen, you live in the presence of God. You live in communion with God all the time. Never forget that. You should always be praying or praising one or the other. And many times, both. In the midst of that, you see. Alec uh, Moter I wrote a commentary on James, and he put it like this. He says, Our whole life 
should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. Our whole life should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. That's the way our life ought to be angled. Oh, when I was a kid, uh, in those days, it's probably different now, but I had three older sisters, so I had nobody to play catch with. Uh, baseball, because those days girls didn't do that. So I had this thing. Maybe they still sell them. I don't know what it was called. It was this, uh, I called it a backstop, but it was this thing that I could, that had a net on it, and I could angle it in such a way that I could actually throw a baseball to it and it would come back to me. Well, I could, it was, I could angle it in such a way and hit it in such a way that I could get grounders, or I could throw it in such a way that I could angle it and get pop-ups, or I could throw it and angle it in such a way that I get line drives back from it. It's, our lives are to be so angled that when anything hits us, it should bounce back to God. That's the way we ought always to be now. Our whole lives are lived in communion with each other because we're in communion with God. And we know that from a human perspective. For instance, in my life, when suffering comes, when difficulties come, when troubles come, I share that first with my wife. I mean, she's, she's my go-to. And my family, my dad, my kids, friends. It, it, you know, it's kind of like this outward thing. You, you know that in, in your life. Why do you do that? Because not to complain, but to get their help and their counsel and their prayers. Why? Because that's your life. You live in communion with them. If you don't have that, your trouble's worse than you even think. Right? And the same is true when good things happen. You know, what happens, something good comes into your life and you, you know it, you've you got to tell somebody. It's just no fun just having it by yourself, right? You, you need to tell somebody. So I tell my wife, I tell my kids, tell my friends. And it, it makes the whole experience, you see, brings it to fruition. Well, we mustn't ever forget that we're in communion with this one we can't see. He really is here. And he's most significant in our lives, you see. And so our go-to when suffering comes should be praying. Our, our lives should be so angled that we, whatever hits us, bounces back to God in some way. Praying, help me, please. Give me strength. Or thank you. This is great. And you see, as we live like that, we're living in communion with God. See, this table is a participation. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, this is a participation. This is a, the Greek word. If you um, were a Christian in the 70s, you know this word. Uh, the koinonia. Thanks, John. I can see you mouth it over there. Yeah, uh, Koinonia. We had koinonia groups, you see. Fellowship groups. That's what it means. We, we participate in, you see. Uh, and... Uh, uh, now we're just, well, we just call them small groups, but, uh, life groups, but, 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 but those days, we participate, we participate, we come to this table. It's a communion with Jesus. He's here. Uh, the bread and juice is bread and juice, doesn't change. 
But, but he's here with us and we acknowledge that. And so we come, we participate. This is a way that he's established. So we, we participate. And so as, as, as we come with various sufferings, we come to this table, I trust, praying to receive from him grace and mercy and help. Can we get that other places? Sure. But he designed this for a time for us to come and receive. So we come praying. And it's also referred to as Eucharist, Thanksgiving. And so we come to give thanks. So I trust this morning as you come to this table, you're coming with both. There's prayers, oh God. And there's thanks so much. There's both as we come to this table. Because we're always to be so angled that everything bounces to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us this morning that you'd help us as we come to this table. Um, Already, I know, distractions are popping into our heads. And so I pray that even now you would center us. That we would know that we need you in our difficulties. And so we will come praying. And we know that you have been so generous to us. Oh, to save us from our sins. And to stick with us and to enable us to persevere in the midst of this life. And to give us friends to walk through it. And a church that continues to exhort us to follow you. And so, Father, we pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in some way. That we'd know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. And that as we come to him with prayers and praises on our lips. That you would receive our praise and hear our prayers. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.